Well, opening your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. My, I got a headache. <laughs> I've had a headache since last Sunday. <laughs> so, um, I mentioned this last week. Uh, there are, when you pick a book of the Bible, there are many, many passages that really excite you. There's so much richness and so much blessing that is in them. There's other passages that you kind of want to skirt around and, and kind of get through. And this is a passage that is incredibly challenging to sift through. So, This is very different from what I typically do. This is far more academic than it is um, appropriating truth for commitment or for decision or something along those lines. So let's review very quickly and then we'll get started here. This is going to be a little longer than I would prefer and I would imagine a challenge to your attention span. So I'll just tell you that in the beginning and encourage you to do whatever you have to do to try to stay along because if you drift off for a minute or two, you're going to come back and go, now what was he talking about? I don't understand this at all. It's just that Challenging. So we've looked at the line of Cain in Genesis 4, that genealogy, and as we are to understand that, it represents the seed of the serpent that was a part of the curse issued by God in Genesis chapter 3 because of the serpent's temptation of Eve. This ungodly line is responsible for developing a civilization without any regard for God. It's built upon the angry, rebellious murder of Cain. That line is passed down to who is highlighted for us in Genesis 4, Lamech, who had three sons of, of notoriety. And then this population from the line of Cain grows exponentially. So we looked last time at the line of Seth in Genesis 5, which we are to understand is the line of the godly Seth who replaced Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain. And from the line of Seth would come the one who would crush the head of the serpent as prophesied by God in Genesis chapter 3. So the line of Seth in chapter 5 is a contrast to the line of Cain in chapter 4. The line of Seth is highlighted by the birth of Enosh, where after he is born, it tells us that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Cain is the father of godless civilization. Seth is the father of God-honoring civilization. And so for the conclusion to the genealogy of Seth, we're told that Noah has had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and these are a contrast to the three evil sons of Lamech. So Noah becomes a focal point from this godly line of Seth in preparation for the universal flood that is going to come and bring judgment upon the world. So when we come to chapter 6, which contains the most difficult and the most debated passage in all of Genesis, and perhaps even the most debated passage in all of the Old Testament, it comes at the end of the Sethite genealogy, and the narrative epilogue consists of two distinct sections, sections 1 through 4, which is what we're going to look at today, the intermarriage and procreation by the sons of God and the daughters of men, and then verses 5 through 8, which relate God's angry sorrow over the expanding wickedness of the human population. So we're only going to look at these first four verses today and continuing in our outline, the most difficult outline I've ever tried to do, we look at number four, and that is the epilogue. If you want to know one through three, you've got to go back and listen to the message, and no way I could even begin to summarize that. So here's what God's Word says to us today, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
every single sentence in each of these four verses is filled with interpretive complexity. It's based partially on the nuance of the Hebrew language, the literary style, and the culture, the knowledge of the group of people that Moses is writing to. When you put these three things together and you read through these verses, you go, well, I'm not really sure what that means, but let's move on. Well, there's so much in here that I literally could take three or four weeks to work through these four verses, but I just could not do that to you. I could not do that to myself. Just not going to happen. So there are two major interpretive challenges that we're going to look at in this section. Number one, who are the sons of God? and the daughters of men, and who are the Nephilim. So in the words of Dr. Peter Gentry, who is a professor of Old Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary, he says, what we believe about this passage need not be divisive. It is not central to our salvation and our passion for supporting our position should not, excuse me, should be stated humbly, recognizing the difficulty of that passage and that there are highly intelligent, incredibly well-educated conservative scholarship that disagree on this passage. Now, when you look at what makes a true scholar, these are individuals who speak multiple languages. They read the original Hebrew text. They read and understand the ancient Near Eastern languages that are far, far beyond what we're reading here. And these are people that are they're smarter than anybody should ever be gifted with. And they take all of their knowledge from the ancient culture. They read the original Hebrew and they go, whoa, this is really difficult. And these individuals cannot agree with any type of consensus on what exactly this means. So, who are the sons of God and daughters of men? There are four major interpretations, and within each of these four, there are little subsets that you can run out into an end that you're probably not going to be able to support through the text itself. So the four major interpretations of who these sons of God and daughters of men actually represent. Letter A, men from the line of Seth and women from the line of Cain. Now, this is probably the most traditional interpretation of this passage. This makes a lot of sense based upon the context of what we've read in Genesis chapter 4 and in Genesis chapter 5. Remembering that Genesis 4 is the genealogy of the line of Cain. Genesis 5 is the genealogy of the godly line of Seth. So this section that we're looking at here, 6, 1 through 4 today, and then 5 through 8 next time, is still in the second book of Genesis, remembering that there are 10 books, 10 individual sections that make up the 50-some chapters in the book of Genesis. So in chapter 6, which is chronicling the genealogy of Seth, it would make sense to think that this is speaking about the descendants of Seth, which are a contrast to the evil line of Cain. So to think that way would, would lead us to the conclusion that to marry the daughters of men is for women from the God, excuse me, is women from the godly line of Seth to intermingle and marry the I said this backwards. Gosh, it's so hard. Excuse me. So this is the this is women from the ungodly line of Cain intermingling and marrying the godly line of Seth. So if you take the godly line of Seth and the evil line of Cain and you intermingle those two groups together, those who believe that this is what it's speaking about would say, well, these are the men from the line of Seth, godly men, marrying women from the evil line of Cain. And this intermingling of marriage has corrupted mankind and it leads to the stated displeasure of God and it's going to bring about judgment through the flood. That's the traditional understanding of what this actually means. But there are difficulties with this position based upon textual issues. For example, verse 1 says, 
in the NASB, the version that I read from, in most other English translations. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. Now, since most English translations say men, it leads us to believe this is talking about the godly men from the line of Seth. The challenge is, in the Hebrew language, it doesn't use a gender-specific reference for men. It uses a general reference to mankind as a whole. So rather than identifying a selected group of men from the line of Seth, then the Hebrew language is actually talking about all of the men of mankind. So the ESV picks up on this nuance and says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Daughters being born to this general reference of mankind. So with this adjustment, it could be concluded that verse 1 is talking about general mankind and not specifically the godly men from the line of Seth. In understanding it this way, it would also mean that the daughters of men would not necessarily be the daughters of the evil line of Cain, but to the daughters born to mankind as a whole. So with this understanding, what is being described is a general population explosion through procreation, which was God's prescribed blessing to mankind to fill the earth and subdue it. The problem is the population growth is bringing greater corruption to the earth and not necessarily because the godly line of Seth is marrying women from the ungodly line of Cain. So if it doesn't mean that, if it doesn't mean men from the godly line of Seth marrying women from the evil line of Cain, and that is displeasing to God, what is it that brings about God's displeasure and the the subsequent flood that is going to wipe out the population? Challenging question to answer. So the second textual issue in the understanding of this relating to Seth the line of Seth and the line of Cain, is a more major interpretive issue, and that leads us to the second major interpretation, and that is angels that have married women. Whoa, where did that come from? I mean, you're just pulling that out of the air. Well, surprising to most, this is perhaps the oldest interpretation of this passage. This view is supported by the early church fathers. It was also supported by early Jewish interpreters. This view is represented very well in non-biblical sources such as First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, and the writings of Philo and Josephus. Well, why does that matter? Well, it is because these non-biblical sources had infiltrated the understanding and the knowledge of the Jewish culture as a whole. And so what they understand then is that this, this, the Son of God here is a reference to angels as has been established in the book of Enoch book of Jubilees, the writings of Philo and Josephus. But it isn't limited just to those non-biblical sources. So here's where the Hebrew text becomes very, very interesting. The exact linguistic phrase, sons of God, is found only six times in the Old Testament. It's found twice Here in the book of Genesis, it's found three times in the book of Job, and it's found once in the book of Daniel in Aramaic. Every time in the the Old Testament that that phrase is used, the sons of God, it is a clear reference to angelic beings. So, for example, what we see in Job 1.6, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. It's a very clear reference to angelic beings. Also in Job chapter 2, verse 1, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. 
Again, a very clear reference to angelic beings. Now, in Job chapter 38, which we looked at way back in chapter 1 of our study of Genesis, when God had created the heavens and the earth, we reference this passage here in Job 38, verses 4 through 7, and it is in this passage that God is challenging Job and his very limited and finite understanding, and he poses these questions to Job. Where are you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Paul's right there. Nobody knows that but God. Nobody. And this is why God is challenging Job's understanding. Verse 7, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you, Job, when the sons of God shouted for joy when they saw what I had created? Again, a very clear reference to angelic beings shouting for joy at the creation of God. Finally, in Daniel chapter 3, when the king looked into the furnace where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were sent as a punishment for their unwillingness to bow down to the idol of the day, the king comes and looks and looks into the furnace and says, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, you notice the gods there is little g, and that's because it was written in Aramaic and translated into the Hebrew. But again, it is a reference to an angelic being. In the king's estimation, this is an idol, but he sees this as a divine entity, some kind of an angelic being who is in the midst of this fiery furnace, and he and the other three men are unharmed. A distinction should be made between other places in the Bible where the relationship between a human and God is expressed as a father-son relationship. We're, we're aware of that, aren't we? So we see this phrase, sons of God, and we also know that God has chosen to reveal himself to us as a father, and those who come to faith in God relate to him as a father, and we are his sons and are his daughters. So it is not uncommon for us to think about our relationship to God in one of one as a father-son relationship. Adam and God have a father-son relationship. David and God have a father-son relationship. The nation of Israel is considered to be the sons of God, But the Bible never actually says that Adam is a son of God, nor does it say that David or the nation of Israel is the son of God. It doesn't use that linguistic expression. Well, you say, well, you're just kind of making this a semantic debate. Well, it really isn't a semantic debate. It is staying true to the Hebrew text and what it actually says and what it means. So, for example, when we see the usage of God referring to people as father and son, we read in, in Deuteronomy 14.1, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. More generically, in Isaiah 1-2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. So the phrase, sons of God, is only used to describe angelic beings. There are many references to a father-son relationship between God and humans, but it never uses that same linguistic expression. It never uses the same Hebrew text, sons of God. Now, what is really, really challenging and interesting is in the New Testament, you also have examples of where Peter and Jude believed that Genesis 6 described angelic beings. So in 2 Peter 2, which we're going to look at in just a second, Peter is describing that difficult days are coming for Christians. There will be those that deny the faith, those that deny the truth about the person and the work of Jesus. They will deny the gospel. False teachers will come in and bring corruption into the church. And so Peter appeals to the Old Testament as a source of encouragement 
for the listeners of his day. And what he says basically is this. If God could deliver his faithful people in difficult times in the Old Testament, most certainly God will deliver his faithful people in the here and now. So in drawing encouragement from the Old Testament experience, he uses two examples. The first one, Noah being delivered from the flood in Genesis 6, and Lot being delivered from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's look at what Peter says here. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 7. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. One example, the sin of the angels, the rescue of Noah... The second example, in verses 6 and 7, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live godly lives thereafter, and if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. The second example. The ungodly actions of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of the faithful righteous Lot. Two examples that are drawn from Second Peter that relate to Genesis 6, where the angels apparently have done something that they should not do, and also the sin that is found in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Jude makes a similar connection between these false teachers, the denial of the faith, corruption in the church, the difficult times that are going to come. He also uses two examples. Angels who abandoned their proper home and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not known with precision if Jude is referencing what Peter referenced with Angels abandoning their proper home and the sin of the angels that he referenced. It's not clear what he actually does here. But here's what Jude says in six verses 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. One example, one evil act, one punishment. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The second example, the sin that took place in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and then the rescue of Lot. Now, what is referenced here in verse 7 is the they and the these. They, the angels who left their proper home, and these, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In both examples, there is an abnormal form of sexual practice taking place. Bizarre. Very challenging. Very unconventional in our understanding. But it appears to be very, very true to the Hebrew text and the way Peter and Jude understood what the Hebrew text was referencing in Genesis chapter 6. But this position of the sons of God being angels is not without difficulty. So one such difficulty is in our understanding of what Jesus taught about angels, specifically when he was asked about the resurrection. And Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-two thirty: For in the resurrection they, the resurrected people, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So what Jesus is describing here is the correct and proper function of angels In heaven, angels in heaven are not married. They are not given in marriage. Just like in the resurrection, people are not married, nor are they given in marriage. So neither marry, and it is assumed that angels, being spirits, lack the ability to engage in sexual activity. 
But the question is this. If angels have abandoned their proper abode, as Jude describes, and are able to take on the form of man, as is referenced many, many times throughout the Scripture, the appearance of Gabriel, the appearance of Michael, the appearance of angels in the book of Genesis where they actually look like men, they ate food, they conversed, they did all those things that men do. Could it also be possible that by taking on the form of a man that these angelic beings could actually procreate like men. It's a question that really cannot be answered. There is so much about angels that the Bibles just don't tell us. It is dependent upon us to provide or supply a lot between the lines that we really can't say, this is what it says, this is what it means. So, the biggest difficulty with this position about the sons of God being angels actually engaging in sexual relationships with women is also found right here in the text, which is what makes it an incredibly difficult passage to interpret and to teach. From the beginning, in this epilogue, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, it is entirely concerned with humanity and its outcome not angels and their punishment. The flood is God's judgment against man, as noted in verse 3, and as is noted several times in verses 5 through 7, and there is no reference to the culpability of angels for the punishment that is going to come to man. Another challenge up to this point is that in Genesis there's no mention of an angelic coast. In fact, Genesis doesn't even reference the creation of angels. So what are you to believe? I mean, what are you to think? Are these angels having sexual relationships with women and thereby creating men? Is it from the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain? It's incredibly difficult to actually say this is what it means. So while this view of the angels being the Son of God, having sexual relations with women, and then procreating men... It's a challenge to fit within the text because of what the focus of the judgment is. Flesh. And if angelic beings can procreate with women, are they semi-divine? Are are they demigods? What are they exactly? It's an unanswerable question. So the third major interpretation, letter C, the sons of God and the daughters of men are judges and rulers who are marrying women. Now, it was common in ancient cultures for kings and judges and rulers, those within the aristocratic world, to be considered semi-divine or ruling on behalf of the gods. Now, obviously, this is a part of what has risen up from the ancient cultures who know nothing about the one true God. They know nothing about Yahweh. They worship a pantheon of little g-gods and idols. But this understanding has infiltrated Israel's understanding about the world in which they live. So... This idea of judges and rulers marrying women and being semi-divine or being demigods was especially true within the mythological stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which preceded Moses by several hundred years. It's very possible that the nation of Israel that Moses is writing to during the wilderness wanderings understands something about the Epic of Gilgamesh, or perhaps they know something about the some 1,500 to 2,000 gods that were worshipped in the nation of Egypt, to whom they were enslaved for some 430 years. So it's not uncommon within the ancient world for kings and rulers to marry any woman they wanted. This is exactly what David did when he gazed out and saw Bathsheba and said, Hey, I like that. I think I'll take her and make her my wife. There was a problem. She was already married, and so was he. Big deal, right? Sometimes... In doing so, these kings and rulers who were treated like semi-divine individuals or demigods would marry many, many different women and have very large harems. It is thought that perhaps this is where harems actually began to take place within the ancient world. Sometimes these kings and rulers would take a woman just for sexual purposes and they would do so on her wedding day. Think of that. A king or a ruler who was believed by the masses to be 
ruling on behalf of the gods, would say, hey, before you consummate your wedding, she's coming with me. I mean, think about how despicable that is. Perhaps this is a part of what is taking place within the world, and God is saying, this is just not what I desired for man when I created him. So this is perhaps the most unlikely of the interpretations for the very simple reason the text doesn't really support that this is referencing rulers or kings or people from the aristocratic world. Now, up to this point, we're not told anything in Genesis about specific civilizations that have been developed. We only know that Lamech is the father of three kids, and one of those kids is actually, well, each of the three kids are fathers to um, godless civilization in general. But this is a period of some 15, 1600 years, and it's really difficult to know what specific civilizations may have risen up within this time frame. And were there actual kings and rulers and others that are not being identified in the book of Genesis that is actually being referenced here? It's it's a question that really cannot be answered with a great amount of clarity. Now, letter D, the fourth example of what this interpretation could mean is demon-possessed men marrying women. Now, this is not a major historical view But this is a view that has been adopted by some very noteworthy pastors and teachers, some of whom I am confident you have read and or listened to, and you may have even heard them reference this if you've actually heard any teachings about angels or about Genesis chapter 6. So this view is an attempt to combine the strength of the text where the sons of God clearly reference angelic beings and bringing in the the difficulties of the judgment of mankind together through the flood. And so it seems like it's a hybrid view of the sons of God representing angelic beings, yet it's still speaking of the punishment, the judgment coming on flesh, the men, because it isn't actually angelic beings that are procreating. It is demon-possessed men who are procreating with these women, and they are passing on this very demonic way of thinking, this demonic worldview. And so they try to bridge together the strength of the text and the challenge of the judgment being upon man. They try to bring it together in such a way that it harmonizes the passage together. They argue that since the phrase sons of God clearly refers to angels, and since angels cannot marry or procreate, this then is describing fallen fallen angels possessing men and marrying women. Part of the connection is found in Genesis 6-2, which commentators have long said is a parallel to the fall that is described in Genesis chapter 3 with Eve in the garden. There, in the garden, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. She desired it. She took and ate. And here in our passage, the demonized replay of the fall is actually being articulated. The object of lust is not the fruit, but the bodies of the women that are now populating the world. So these demons saw, and it was pleasing to the eye, and they took it for themselves. As a result, civilization has been taken over by Satan and his host of fallen angels. This is the conclusion, then, of what those who ascribe to demon-possessed men marrying women would lead to the conclusion. So each of these positions has merit and each position has challenges. And I don't think that we can ever fully understand the challenges and come out with a very clean way of understanding or explaining what this passage is all about. That complexity is not to be the focus point. The focus point is here in what we're going to see in verse 3, and that is God is displeased. God created Adam and Eve in the garden to fellowship with Him, created them in His image, gave them the privilege of exercising dominion over the world. They would do that as a delegate of His sovereign rule in their lives. But when they sinned, it changed everything. Very, very quickly in their genealogy, the first two children are born and one of the kids kills the other. Big, big problems just a few years after the fall. So as this sin has spread throughout 
15, 1600 years of population explosion. And as I mentioned last week, estimates are that there were perhaps hundreds of millions of people alive at this time, perhaps even billions with some of the most aggressive estimates. God has looked upon the world that he has made and he sees a sickening display of evil being lived out in this world that he made God is not displeased with his plan or with his purpose of multiplication and subjugation of the earth, but with the expansion of evil on this world that he has made. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. So this verse, like the other two, is filled with interpretive challenges. Commentators and scholars differ and disagree about what the word my spirit actually is referencing, what strive or contend is actually referencing, what flesh or corrupt actually means, and finally the length of life of 120 years. Yeah, it's just it's just deep and it's very, very difficult to be able to say this is exactly what Moses intends. So, For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize, and you're going to thank me for this later. (laughs) A commentator by the name of Brueggemann explains verse 3 and condenses it to say it like this. The judgment is that God will not endlessly and forever permit His life-giving Spirit to enliven those who have disordered His world. The breath of life remains His to give and to recall. So we could look at this and say, well, that's a pretty stiff penalty that God is going to bring about a universal flood and He's going to wipe out hundreds of millions of people, but life is God's to give, it is life, it is God's to take away. And God is going to exercise His divine prerogative of judgment on ever-increasing sin within the world that He created And that he is just in doing exactly that. So the 120 year lifespan is difficult to justify, which most people have concluded is what it means. And the reason it's difficult is that several of the patriarchs after the flood lived in, lived beyond the 120 year maximum that seems to be communicated here. It is probable that the 120 years is the length of time between the proclamation that God gives of impending judgment here and the time when the rain and flood actually comes, 120 years from the time God proclaimed the flood to the time that the boat was ready and would take Noah and his family away. Think about it like this. Noah had 120 years to build the ark, become a laughing stock to sinful humanity that would soon encounter the full wrath of God. That's the first of two major interpretive challenges that are in these four verses. <laughs> Alright, the second major challenge in this section is who are the Nephilim? The Nephilim, it says in verse 4, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, Realistically, there are two likely interpretations of who the Nephilim actually are. Letter A, they are the offspring. These are the children born to the sons of God when they married the daughters of men. Literally, the word Nephilim, which only appears here and then again in Numbers uh, chapter 13, means fallen ones. And that's what it says in Numbers 13.33 when the spies went out into the land that God was giving to them and they said, wow, the giants are there. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And it says in Numbers chapter 13 that these were the descendants of Anak and they were giants. That's what it says in Numbers 13. And the word only appears here. So literally means fallen ones, but a genetic link between those mentioned in Numbers 13 and the Nephilim here in Genesis 6 is impossible. 
A genetic link between the Nephilim here in Genesis 6 and the Nephilim in Numbers 13 is impossible. Why? Because they were all wiped out in the flood. The post-flood population comes just from the sons of Noah. The previous genetic link, especially since it would have referenced the line of Cain, has been pretty much wiped out. So the idea that these were offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men was established around the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. It's not the only time that it was reported or thought about, but it's where it became entranced in the thinking of those who were interpreting the Hebrew Bible and then moving into the translation of the Greek Bible. So this conclusion is largely derived from the book of Enoch. Enoch is a part of the Pseudophigra or the Apocrypha, which are a collection of Jewish writings that did not make it into the final canonization of Scripture because these writings were inconsistent with the very clear teachings of the rest of the Bible, and so they were rejected. Now, the book of Enoch allegedly recounts the travels of Enoch after God removed him from the earth. So when you go back and read the genealogy of Seth, Enoch was and then he was not. Well, the book of Enoch is is an attempt to explain what Enoch did, where he went, what took place after God took him. The problem with that is that Enoch, the book of Enoch, is teaching a lot of things that are inconsistent with other clear teachings within Scripture. As an example, the book of Enoch references an angel by the name of Phanuel, P-H-A-N-U-E-L, Phanuel, and that Bible, that, excuse me, that angel is never mentioned anywhere in our Bible. And the book of Enoch says that Phanuel has the ability to forgive sin and grant eternal life, which is clearly something that is reserved for God and God alone. So if you are to accept the book of Enoch and all that it taught, that means that There isn't just a one true God. There's this angel Phanuel who apparently has the ability to forgive sin and grant eternal life. So there's this idea that is perpetrated through the book of Enoch about who the Nephilim actually were. And the influence of this book is all throughout Jewish culture, which is very significant. It's likely that the Jewish historians like Philo and Josephus would have carried that understanding into their writings, which other Jewish historians would have referenced. And it it influenced the early church fathers who would likely have adopted the same idea that the Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, and they were giants. That would have been the understanding in the early church history. But there are difficulties with this interpretation. Surprise, surprise. And they are primarily found within a literal reading of the Hebrew text. Let's look at verse 4a. There's two sentences in verse 4. The first one is here in verse 4a. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So the beginning part of verse 4, that first sentence, leads us to the second possible interpretation. Not that they were the offspring of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, but the Nephilim were already there. Well, wait a minute. How does that happen? So from the text, it says the Nephilim were already on the earth when the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. It's exactly what it says. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now there are two keys to interpreting the Nephilim already being there, and they are in this text that we're looking at. Peter Gentry, who I mentioned earlier, excuse me, there are two keys in the interpretation. The first one is this, in those days and also afterward, Peter Gentry, the professor of Old Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary, researched every single usage of the phrase, and also afterward, in the Hebrew Bible. He's one of these scholars 
that can read the Hebrew Bible like you and I can read an English Bible. And oh, by the way, he can read many of the ancient languages that have long since passed. And he's researched every usage of that phrase and also afterwards. And he says that it means exactly what it sounds like. The Nephilim were on the earth when the sons of God came and married the daughters of men. And they were on the earth afterward as well. The Nephilim had nothing to do with the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men, based upon how we would understand what verse 4 literally says in the Hebrew text. Now, the second reason for this interpretation is found in the second sentence, or verse 4b. Verse 4b says, Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, what is always difficult for us to understand is that when any language is translated into another language, you lose some of the nuance there. Peter Gentry says that almost every sentence, almost every sentence in the Hebrew Bible begins with the word and. Think about that. Almost every sentence in the Hebrew Bible begins with the word and. When the sentence does not begin with the word and, it means that it is either introducing a new section or it is a comment on the previous sentence, like a footnote or like a parenthetical statement. The Nephilim were on the earth before the sons of God married the daughters of men and bore them children, and they were also there afterwards. The Nephilim were the ancient heroes. That's what verse 4 actually says. What Moses is doing is he is demythologizing, I can hear demythologizing, Demythologizing, there it is, demythologizing the Nephilim. Thinking about this, the common Hebrew understanding was that the Nephilim were semi divine, they were demigods, they were giants, they were a challenge because of their semi divine nature. And Moses is saying that's not really who they are. Now, if Moses did write this during the wilderness wanderings, then the nation of Israel was well aware of the myths related to the mighty men of old, the heroes, these individuals that were thought to be demigods or semi-divine rulers. So again, Israel was enslaved to Egypt for 430 years and were exposed to the 1,500 to 2,000 different little g gods a nation of Egypt worshipped. And what Moses is attempting to do is to undo this idea of the Nephilim being semi-divine giant creatures that could not ever be overcome. So he's trying to undo this idea in the minds of the readers. So what he is saying, in a sense, is this. These people that you've heard about, perhaps even these people that you've seen, they aren't demigods, they aren't divine, they are mere men. They're men of renown. Men you have already seen when you scouted out the land. Men that you consider to be divine warriors. Men that you have heard about for years and years and years. And when the Israelite spies went in to scout out the land and saw these giant individuals, what did they say? We can't beat these people. We're like grasshoppers in their side. They're going to crush us like bugs. What are we supposed to do? Well, what Moses is doing is he is undoing the idea that these are unconquerable demigods, but these are mere men who are subject to the sovereign rule of God. So the Nephilim that the Israelites were to encounter when they inhabited the promised land were just like the giants that David would encounter when he came up against Goliath. 
You don't have to go very far in our own culture to see giants in our own day and age. Just look at professional sports. Just look at some of these basketball players. I guess they're 7'4", 7'5", 300 pounds. They run like the wind. They jump and hit the top of the backboard. They're, they're beasts. But the text simply does not tell us who the Nephilim actually were Probably because their identity was well known by the first readers of this text, the people that Moses is speaking to. Greg and I spoke about this when we had a little time this morning. And Greg says it very, says it very well. It's like reading somebody else's letter. And you're reading this portion of a letter and you go, I have no idea what they're talking about. Well, the person who wrote the letter and the person who received the letter know exactly what they're talking about. So you might write a friend and say, yeah, you remember that crazy weekend we had? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Nobody else really knows what that means. Well, it's very probable that the Israelites knew exactly who the Nephilim were. It didn't need to be spelled out and identified to them who they actually were. And so Moses is saying, whoever you think these ancient heroes are, these men of renowned, they don't come from the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. They are not semi-divine beings. They are mere men and they are subject to the sovereign rule of God. Well, did the Israelites need to know that lesson? Did they need to understand that? Well, absolutely they did. Just as we do today. Well, this passage is incredibly difficult And it's very easy for us to get bogged down into its complexity and to lose sight of what we know to be... uh, I don't know where that came from. Um, Oh, I know what it was. It was supposed to be deleted. Um, We can get bogged down into the complexity of this passage and lose sight of what God wants us to know very, very clearly is that the sin of humanity is going to be judged... It was judged in the Old Testament in Genesis 6 through a universal flood. And it was a second attempt to reestablish humanity in the godly line that God had intended. And that has been rejected. And the sin of man has multiplied exponentially. And there is going to be a future judgment, not like the flood, but potentially far worse with brimstone and fire. It is going to exact judgment on sinful mankind. Two inescapable truths. God sovereignly rules and He is going to justly judge the world that He has made. When He does, He's not going to be asking you, where did you come out on Genesis chapter 6, run through 4? What do you think I was saying there? Is it is it the guided line of Seth and the unguided line of Cain? Is it the angels marrying demons? I mean, where do you really stand on that? Because your eternity depends upon that. Oh my gosh, (laughs) no. What we know is that we can know God through our faith in Jesus Christ who died in our place on the cross, taking upon Himself our punishment, our penalty, experience our consequence so that we would become the very righteousness of God. Understanding and knowing all the nuances of very complex passages is not really what we need to devote our time and our energies to. It is celebrating what is abundantly clear to us, the love of God made known to us through the cross of Christ and that we can know Him. Would you join me in prayer?